My name's Eden, and this is Crossroads Cafe. Today's interview features Michelle Luke, an incredible writer and journalist who's doing groundbreaking coverage on modern drug and rave culture, among many other things. She's the author of the book Weed, Everything You Want to Know But Are Always Too Stoned to Ask, and runs a series of stoner parties called Weed Rave. She's also the author of Rave New World, which is possibly my favorite Substack newsletter of all time, and I would highly suggest that you subscribe. In this interview, we talk about drugs, of course, mushrooms, ketamine, weed, etc., and their revolutionary potential, or lack thereof. Michelle is doing some of the best journalism on modern counterculture out there, and I am incredibly honored to have her on the show today. Yeah, so I do this podcast uh, where I focus on the intersections between usually art, spirituality, and social change, and... uh, I find your work kind of bridges those gaps in a really cool way, sort of more in the partying rave intersection with spirituality and social change. Um, And I just wanted to start off by asking, because I know that you've kind of just re-entered the, we all have just kind of re-entered the world over the past few months. Um, What are some of the more creative or innovative events you've seen happening recently? Um, What are the, like, are any... Does anything stand out in your mind as one of the more interesting events you've gotten to experience since we've reemerged? Um, I mean, this is all very new, right? I mean, events only started coming back um, last month in New York. So unfortunately, I'm not sure if I've seen anything in New York that's really blown me away in terms of innovation. I think that what's been really remarkable is how everything just kind of resumed the way that they were happening before the pandemic. It's almost Mm -hmm. like this Rip Van Winkle effect where you wake up and everything's kind of the same, even though a lot of time has passed and it's very surreal. Um, I think if anything, it feels like what whatever was happening in New York before the pandemic has just been kicked into overdrive. Um, and now we have this absolutely firing on all cylinders nightlife industry with a capital I that really blossomed out of the DIY scene um, that happened in Brooklyn in the 2000s and 2010s. Mm-hmm. So I think it is a continuation, but Um, I haven't seen anything that strikes me as particularly breaking the mold. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that in LA, um, I did start to see the very beginnings of a new sort of more um, nature-oriented, outdoor, um, wellness-oriented cannabis adjacent style parties um and I think that is interesting to observe because LA has been you know kind of a laggard in terms of nightlife I don't think that anyone really thinks of LA as a particularly nightlife oriented city but I think the pandemic really helped um people who do events in LA rethink their approach to nightlife and make it more about daylife and make it more about B 
being in these beautiful outdoor public spaces that LA has so much abundance for and just to reconceptualize how parties and events can fit the personality and and the strengths of LA as a city. So that's given me a lot of hope and I'm very interested in seeing how LA kind of continues that um, evolution that feels more authentic to its own identity. Cool. Yeah. I, I love how you describe, um, yeah, how you describe parties in terms of the way that they occupy spaces. And like, I feel like you kind of speak about them in almost as if they're like organisms, um, which is kind of what I wanted to ask about next. You have a lot of cool writing about um, things like forest rays, mycelium music, um, a lot of uh, exploration of shrooms and the intersection of like mycology and parties. So in your mind, um, where do you see sort of the connection between ecology and partying or raves or nightlife? Um, And why do you feel like that intersection is kind of expanding right now? Yeah, um, I love that question. I think that Right now we're seeing a really interesting kind of dovetailing of social culture and psychedelics, Mm -hmm. um, especially with the legalization of a lot of these substances or decriminalization and just, you know, more widespread social acceptance and awareness of their medical and therapeutic benefits. So I think that um, the shift towards what I described as plant-based partying (laughs) in my Mm -hmm. newsletter, really is indicative of a a shift in modality as well, right? From, I'm going to say, to put it in very simplistic terms, like from hedonism to healing. I Mm. think that hedonism, of course, let's not, let's not villainize it. Pleasure is very important. Hedonism Mm. is very important. Um, But I think for too long, nightlife and partying has been associated with destructive behavior. And that's a big reason why it's been so stigmatized in the mainstream. But During the pandemic, I think a lot of people turned to substances like psychedelics for mental health reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, like I said, with the sort of legalization of these substances, it became more acceptable to talk about them in public. And so when we came out of the pandemic, um, what was so interesting to me is how many people who you don't even think of as nightlife people would say, I miss dancing so much. This is what I need to do right now. So I think there was a destigmatization of partying as well and of dancing and the recognition that this act is a form of therapy, catharsis and healing. And it's a very primal aspect of like human beings. Mm -hmm. So I think these two elements kind of converge together and people just started becoming very interested in partying with psychedelics or on psychedelics Mm -hmm. and then you know when 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 you're thinking about um designing spaces around and designing parties around psychedelics it's a no-brainer that it has to happen outdoors that it has to be connected to the earth and so i think um psychedelics obviously encourage um, a deepened relationship to plant life, um, a more of an interaction and a reciprocal relationship. It's not just decor, it's actually like interacting with these plants and feeling their effect on your well being and your mental state and spirituality. So um, 
I don't know. I think there's been a very interesting um, recognition and deepening of um, what nightlife or even daylife and social practices around psychedelics and mental health can really be about. And for these sorts of events to be, um, I don't know, I think they're, they're expanding the potential of how psychedelics can function in social culture. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot that I could ask about there. Yeah, that's definitely been, been my experience, sort of noticing this, yeah, like renewed interest in psychedelics just around me, but also kind of that combined with sort of a deeper desire to connect with nature, maybe. Um, I've also noticed, I think it's impossible to generalize, but yeah, I did want to ask you, you've talked a little bit about if there's a, or the way that psychedelic culture is really up and coming and maybe we're kind of entering a second psychedelic revolution type era. Um, so I'm wondering where you see psychedelics going and what you see the potential, um, what you see the potential being. And also I'm wondering if there's anything we can learn from the past psychedelic eras um, that maybe we can take with us today. Um, so yeah, just what it, mostly just what are your thoughts about how psychedelics could affect us in these coming years? Yeah, I mean, I see it kind of going in two directions at once. I think that in the overground mainstream corporate worlds, what's happening is that these psychedelics are becoming commodified and becoming very much, um, you know, um, items on the stock exchange, you know, <laughs> things that can be traded upon and capitalized on um, and regulated and marketed and um, branded mm. and um, traded and, you know, all these kinds of uh, developments are completely new. This did mm. not exist in 70s counterculture. This is completely new terrain for psychedelics mm. and their sort of, you know, entry into the pharmaceutical industry even while perhaps providing an alternative to pharmaceuticals, you know, I think a lot of the business models still echo what's going on in terms of like IP intellectual property battles around different practices and the medicalization of psychedelics also means that there's this whole sort of cottage industry of, um, you know, medical and, and pharmaceutical companies that are, attempting to corner the market and um, just create a sort of infrastructure around it and how um, these therapies are going to be, uh, you know, given to people and, and, and who gets to be a psychedelic therapist and who gets to train the psychedelic therapists and, you know, basically just the gatekeepers to this medicine. Mm -hmm. um, so, like I said, I think this is all new and it's, fascinating to watch in some ways, even if it does sort of, you know, dampen some of the more utopian and idealistic um, attitudes that maybe you might have thinking that psychedelics, you know, are here to save the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, at the same time, though, I think that um, what is going to happen with psychedelics will echo what happened with cannabis where the underground or so-called black market or illicit market is going to be even bigger than the, 
than than the regulated market. And um, I think this will be a really interesting and exciting space for people who um, also don't want to participate in the more, you know, medicalized and commodified model and just want to grow their own shrooms at home and administer it on themselves or with their friends. Um, And I think that the same sort of therapeutic modalities will exist in the underground, but it'll be much more individual and much more specific to like local cultures than it is about, you know, um, branding or precise dosages or, or any of the sort of medical protocols that will exist in the mainstream. It'll be, um, yeah, I think much more um, personal. And um, I also think there are going to be a lot of underground brands, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, people just sort of um, creating their own products and experimenting with their own aesthetics and means of administering these medicines. And that's kind of interesting to observe, too, how these 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 substances can be um, made into lifestyle products. and 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 branded in some ways um and obviously for now uh psychedelic brands for recreational use will be something that's only in the underground so Mm -hmm. yeah interesting I feel like one thing I really love about your work is how you kind of address a lot of paradoxes like um in a really interesting way there's that contrast between the inevitable commodification of things like psychedelics and I guess cannabis before it, and then also their sort of healing um, or liberatory potential. Um, And you also explore that thin boundary between sort of hedonism and release healing growth, um, which is really cool. So I guess my question for you is um, as people who are participating in parties who might be planning or creating spaces um how like what kind of spaces do you feel like foster sort of that more growth healing um becoming aspect rather than the other the other side of things or how do we foster those more positive aspects as we kind of all discover what's happening in this new reality um a great question. I think that one thing that I've always been interested in is expanding the idea of what a rave can be. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the 90s model of, you know, um, partying in these sort of post-industrial spaces, um, you know, empty warehouses and other sorts of remnants of mm-hmm. <laughs> industrialism um, is the dominant aesthetic and modality for rave culture. Mm -hmm. But as we move into this sort of bio future that is really concerned with climate and environmentalism, Mm -hmm. um, I think that to me, it's more interesting to think about the future of raving as being something that echoes that sort of aesthetic and interests and ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, the eighties cyberpunk future is one that feels very 
dystopian and um, played out to me in some senses. Um, and I'm interested in parties that make you feel good in your body, um, that maybe um, give you a sense of being more connected to your physical self mm -hmm. um, rather than dissociation and escape. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also really interested in providing space for people who are sober or sober positive. I don't think mm -hmm. it needs to be a binary of this is either a sober space or it's not. Another thing that I'm, you know, always banging my drum on is that sobriety is more of a spectrum than a binary and that it's more of an orientation and a set of values of what you want, how you want to feel. Um, and those feelings are presentness, um, lucidity and engagement rather than dissociation. And I think there's so much dissociation going on right now. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it's like the postmodern condition of alienation. So anything that helps you to be more connected with yourself, your feelings, your body and the people around you, this to me feels like the healing modality and it can happen um, in a very intensified way through parties because these are, you know, spaces that um, are, are very short and intense and sort of act as, um, you know, uh, a space where different forces in the zeitgeist can really commingle and come together for a certain time, for a certain space and time, in a certain space and time. So, yeah, uh, that's what I think the power of parties are in terms of pushing the culture forward. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, super cool. Um, I mean, it does sound like, yeah, like living in the backdrop of the, right, with the ecological crisis in the backdrop of everything and living in this, this era of capitalism, there is um, sort of this inevitable dissociation, um, which is interesting. It's interesting that you feel like, yeah, like, I don't know. Do you feel like sort of modern uh, party culture is um, contributing to that dissociation or are there ways to disrupt that? Because I know you write a lot about um, you re you've written a lot about ketamine and that, that which is kind of like a new up and coming thing. And that seems like a very dissociative kind of numbing thing to me. So I'm wondering, yeah, like if you see specifically ketamine and sort of this new variety of numbing drugs uh if you see those as sort of like a positive thing or if you feel like there's like those sort of need to be treated carefully I think both I think that um we can and should acknowledge the breakthrough therapeutic potential of drugs like ketamine while mm -hmm. also acknowledging that they are um, that it is an addictive drug and, um, you know, has been abused by people. Mm -hmm. um, so I think both of these things need to, we, when we talk about the therapeutic potential of psychedelics and drugs, we need to talk about addiction as well. Mm -hmm. And, and the dark side of, of drug culture. I think it's 
really important not to become too idealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, because earlier when you when you asked me about, you know, what can we learn from the past, I mm-hmm. think that's a huge one is being able to talk about all sides at once and not feeling like um, admitting that ketamine can be addictive is going to derail the entire psychedelic movement, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was one of the problems in the past is that um, people just started, you know, dosing everybody mm-hmm. <laughs> without thinking about like who is able to take these drugs, pre-existing conditions. Do we even need to, you know, um, prescribe these drugs to everybody? I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of questions that we still need to kind of figure out, but Mm -hmm. I think I recently had a really, um, breakthrough realization myself about ketamine, which is that, you know, I think, I think ketamine is the drug of postmodernism. I Mm -hmm. think that cocaine was the drug of modernism, Mm -hmm. right? If we're talking about like, you know, acceleration and productivity and, all the things that we kind of associate with modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense that cocaine was the most relevant drug for that era. And I think that now that we're in this really surreal time of postmodernism where there is no cohesive reality, mm-hmm. there's no consensus reality, everything is sort of splintered into multiple different where everyone's living in their own fantasies and it's like a fractal fractalized reality it makes so much sense to me that ketamine is the drug and also that it's an antidepressant when everybody is dealing with so many mental health issues right now so um there's no denying that ketamine fits the tenor of our times Mm. (laughs) and i think um people need that respite people need um the ability to um disengage with negative thought patterns Mm -hmm. and um that's actually how ketamine works as an antidepressant Mm -hmm. i mean psychedelics all work in different ways to combat trauma and what ketamine specifically does is disrupt you know harmful thought loops Mm -hmm. um that create addictive or depressive behavior so i mean that's that's, that's a breakthrough, you know, that's, that's an amazing shift in perspective. That's really invaluable for people who are stuck in these loops. I think of loops as like, you know, a a sign that your machinery is glitching, your internal stem is glitching, you're stuck in a loop. So you need something to kind of break you out of that. And I've talked to people who have gone through these therapies at ketamine clinics, um, where you're given these dosages, uh, intramuscularly in a dark room with a therapist over the course of several weeks. And it's paired with psychotherapy. Um, so like, you know, traditional sort of like CBT, like talk therapy and the results are incredible. Mm -hmm. They were, it's, it's almost like this, 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 this catalyst that like pushes you and accelerates your um, therapeutic journey into hyperdrive. And you're able to achieve in like, you know, a couple months, what would usually take five, 10 years to get to. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, this is very exciting (laughs) and we're just going to see more and more people sort of benefit from these therapies as they become more mainstream. I think that 
what we need to be thinking and talking about more though is um, how to make these therapies more accessible because right now they're the purview exclusively of the 1%. Literally, they are just reinforcing (laughs) the inequality gaps in society um, by allowing only the most privileged to have access to psychedelic therapies because they are thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and they aren't covered by insurance. I mean, I feel like that could just describe so many of our healthcare are totally broken healthcare issues, um, especially in this country. But yeah, it is interesting to think of how these therapies are really, really difficult to access. Um, and so there's going to be people kind of administering their own underground therapies. And there's going to be, there's always going to be underground um, networks that pop up around this. So yeah, that's why I'm kind of interested in um, where's the line? Where's too far? And I think what you said is really powerful um, in that you can sort of hold two truths at once. Something can be both harmful and helpful. Like we don't live in a in a binary universe. Um, and yeah, so that is yeah. Yeah, and just answer. to add to that, and just to add to that, I think that there's been so much community knowledge on the uses and the harms of these drugs over the last few decades because there's been so little medical research available because of prohibition. You know, a lot of the understandings that we've had of these drugs have come through anecdotal use, like literal drug forums online. Um, And I found this sort of, you know, folk knowledge and community knowledge to be extremely useful um, because, you know, there's a sense that the rave scene and the rave community has understood the therapeutic values and the ways to use these substances in a way that's, you know, um, like a harm reduction kind of way. Mm -hmm. How do we use this for max therapy and reduce all of the potential risks? Um, And this is something that the rave community has really developed and understood on its own. Mm -hmm. And now that, you know, there's more and more research being done at all of these really prestigious universities, to me, it's really cool. And in some ways validating Mm -hmm. (laughs) that the science is catching up to what we already know. Mm -hmm. And now it's being proven. Now it's being validated. Now it's being quantified, but we knew this. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess that can kind of move towards, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, sort of the intersection, the more spiritual side of graves and the more spiritual side of spirituality. You have some incredibly gorgeous, uh, like I wanted to read this one sentence that you wrote. Um, this is what it's really about to re-enter the dark womb of the dance floor and in the rush of sugary scents, find yourself rebirthed and transformed within the messy humanity spooling out in its iconoclastic and libidinous forms. Um, so how do you see raves as connected to spirituality? Um, and how, in what way have raves been spiritual experiences for you? Yeah, I think that um, raves are just, you know, a modern uh lens or framing for um, a ritualistic behavior that we've had since ancient times. Mm -hmm. It's just the power of 
um, people moving their bodies in unison, rhythmically, perhaps under the influence of various transcendent plant medicines to arrive at this energetic flow state of, you know, release and catharsis. Um, I think that we know that, um, as one writer put it, the body keeps the score. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. Yeah, um, and that trauma and emotion and, and negative thoughts or whatever, these can be encoded into your body in ways that you don't even recognize consciously. And that it is through movement and dance that these traumas can be processed and released. And I think that um, when you sort of have this ability to um, sublimate the ego into this larger collective, Mm -hmm. this sort of release and relief from not having to identify with your personal traumas just for a moment can be so healing. And to realize that we are part of a larger collective in consciousness, which is the message that psychedelics give everybody, Mm -hmm. you actually experience and embody it through the rave. You can actually feel yourself becoming part of the hive mind on the dance floor. Mm -hmm. And when you kind of pair that with psychedelics, it's just this pure experience of knowing that this is something you know, larger than ourselves. And I think this is very spiritual. And whenever I come out of a really good rave session, you know, it almost feels like my, my, my sense of self and my spirituality and my body has been cracked back into sacred alignment. And I feel like something has shifted within me that has allowed me to kind of be back on track of where I should be. And it's the best feeling. And it's not something that you can have, unfortunately, alone in your living room. (laughs) As I tried to do many times in the pandemic, Uh it really is something that must be experienced collectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of power in the collective. And especially since I don't know too many people in younger generations that go to church or that have these type of really spiritual experiences on the regular. So, um, that definitely makes sense. It is funny. It's always funny to me that, um, in the end, humans are really just looking to connect, like to lose themselves a little and connect with each other. Um, and there's so many ways that we try to do that. Uh, certainly psychedelics give you kind of like a access key to, to it, but, uh, it's just funny to me that we're always looking for that and doing so much to achieve that. Um, Totally. I think that during the pandemic, what really tripped me out is not having the gaze of others to kind of reflect my understanding of myself. Mm -hmm. And it felt like we were all living in this like echo chamber that was also a house of mirrors that could really distort your understanding of yourself because often, you know, negative ideas will become Mm -hmm. exaggerated without other people kind of being able to adjust your reality and what was so cool about coming out back into the world and back onto the dance floor is meeting a lot of people who would sort of comment on things that I was saying or writing about and sort of 
you know, reconstruct my understanding of myself and my world. And I would do it in turn. And um, I don't know. It's just, it's just cool also to um, realize that you can also understand people on a way that's beyond language, just from watching them move on the dance Mm -hmm. floor. I think that the way that people can communicate through dance is actually like really uh, illuminating about their personality. I remember Mm -hmm. the first time that I hit a dance floor with a bunch of strangers after the pandemic and they all started moving and dancing in their own way. I was like, oh, Suddenly, I feel like I, I I understand you and your personality in a whole new way. And it's something that I hadn't really thought about in so long because all of our communications have been through Zoom and Skype. And, you know, it's just talking face to face. But when you really see the way that someone moves, it's like you understand a whole different dimension of them. Totally. <laughs> their attitude, their sass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, as you said, like the body keeps the score. That's a great book. And it's true in so many ways. Like it keeps, it holds trauma, but it also just holds so much of a person's personality. And yeah, I just, I feel like my main rule for knowing any sort of limit uh, is always just like, listen to the body first. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, put it above thought always, um, because I feel like it does tend to have the answers and yeah, the pandemic was difficult because we became, well, that's a too, way too small of a sentence, but yeah, we became disembodied. We became floating heads on screens. And um, so it's interesting to sort of see people rediscover that in all these different experimental spaces that are growing up. But I know that you covered a lot of, you did some of the coolest reporting I saw going on about sort of all the protests and autonomous zones and things like that happening in the pandemic. Um, I am interested in sort of reflecting on all of that. Um, what is your like? What is your impression um, of that? This flare-up of autonomous zones that emerged and this kind of like new culture. Do you see that continuing um, and evolving, and how so? Yeah. So I I I loved. Um the experiences that I had over the summer because I feel that they opened me up to a whole new way of thinking about rape culture in a way that I hadn't had the opportunity to before. So just to recap, I think um, what happened at the beginning of the the summer during the pandemic is that um, these autonomous zones or occupied protests started popping up um all over the country in the wake of the Floyd rebellion or um however you want to call it this movement um and um I started hearing anecdotally that these spaces had become de facto party zones because there was no nightlife and so a lot of the sort of energy that would usually be directed into a bar or a club was being funneled into these zones and, you know, problematized by the fact that these are protest spaces. um, And many people felt that they should not be party spaces because 
partying and specifically the use of drugs and drinking um, compromise the values and the goals of this very, uh, you know, serious movement that was coming out of, you know, the death of Black bodies in America. But you couldn't deny it that it was also a space that people were um, partying and working through traumas and using drugs to escape um, the intensity of the moment. And so, you know, when people started calling these places temporary autonomous zones, my interest was like totally peaked because I only understood temporary autonomous zones up until that point as, you know, obviously the the theory of it, it, it started out as like, you know, a sort of critical theory idea. Um, but it was primarily used in rave, in rave culture to describe raves. Um, so I wanted to go and see what a temporary autonomous zone as a protest space could, could really feel like. So I went to the one in Seattle and then I moved all over the country and visited a bunch of different ones. And what I noticed is that like raves, these Tazes sort of um, operated as their own spaces where a lot of social and cultural forces that were in the broader zeitgeist were really intensified. And a lot of the issues that um, America is facing, such as gun violence, um, were becoming hyper-accelerated in these spaces. Basically, I've always seen raves as places where um, ideas kind of hit first before they become spread into the mainstream, because this is like the fringe of society. These are liminal spaces that are largely unregulated. So what bubbles up when the police aren't there to sweep it away? Mm-hmm. It's gun violence, it's homelessness, and in many cases, it was also sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So I think that these problems were falsely ascribed in the media to the autonomous zones. Mm-hmm specific to like the types of people that were congregating there or whatever, but it really wasn't the fault of the zones. It's that these zones were, you know, places where, like I said, these problems were able to be revealed (laughs) in really stark terms. So, um, um, I did think that partying, um, was a big part of these of these zones and oftentimes was, was seen as problematic, but at the same time, kind of vital. Um, one thing that I noticed that was really interesting was how much sobriety was encouraged in these spaces, um, which struck me as, you know, a different tone than what we associate with the 70s counterculture of drug use as inherently subversive, especially mm-hmm. the idea of like, you know, dropping out basically of society and focusing on the transformation of the self rather mm-hmm. than, um, and transformation of the consciousness as a form of sub- subversive behavior. 
Um, and I think in 2020, that's not really seen as inherently subversive on a political level anymore mm-hmm. because of how much drug culture has shifted in the past 40 years with, yeah. you know, the opioid epidemic, um, the legalization and corporatization of, of cannabis, you know, mm-hmm. things are really different now. And I think that sobriety is actually the way that you choose to so-called drop out of the dominant framework of, uh, you know, of, of drugs and, <laughs> and, and, and the political, and, and, and it's a way of being able to really engage with what's going on politically. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, to answer the last part of your question, will these autonomous zones continue to flare up? I mean, yes, I think that they're already are what you could describe as autonomous zones happening with the line three water Mm -hmm. preservation movement. Um, I know there are a bunch of indigenous communities that have set up, you know, occupied protests around that battle. So I think it could, it could be something that starts to pop up more with the environmental climate change Mm -hmm. movement, which is kind of becoming the dominant fight of our time. Mm -hmm. However, um, I think their efficacy as a protest strategy is limited. I Mm -hmm. think that uh, all of the autonomous zones that I went to, except for maybe two of them, were unsuccessful in their demands that they were uh, raised to the ground by, by, by the police and none of their demands were really met. And the media, you know, portrayed them as dangerous and ineffective zones. Mm-hmm. So um, the only two places that actually managed to um, win some concrete victories were uh, Minneapolis, which is, almost the sacred space because it's where George Floyd died. So I think that it was harder for the police to just sweep everyone out. And then Philadelphia, which was specifically a homelessness focused protest. And they were able to actually wrangle some housing from the city um, as a result of their occupation. But other than that, unfortunately, I didn't really see these spaces in moving the needle in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they were certainly thrown together in a time of immense stress and very fast. So like, they almost seemed, yeah, they seemed like just a, a place to gather um, in addition to a place to foster protests. So, yeah, interesting to hear, interesting to hear your reflections on all that. Um, I am interested in sort of what other kinds of ways you've seen sort of the rave or counterculture scenes intersect with social change um, or if you feel like there's space for that could happen more like I would love to see it happen in the environmental movement a bit more I was pretty involved in that this past year admittedly did not have a super strong counterculture wavelength at the moment that felt it didn't feel a uh, yeah so I feel like that would really help um gel the movement together but I don't really know where that would begin Yeah, I think rave culture has so much to contribute to protest movements because a party is 
an organizing strategy. Mm-hmm. And it is a really sexy way of getting people to care and come out to things. Mm-hmm. Um, ravers know how to organize people. And um, even, you know, the sound systems that came out during the Floyd protest. I was just reading a paper about this, actually. The role that sound system culture played in the protests oh, wow. um, last year. Um, you know, I, I think that um, there's a lot of like dead space and dead time that happens at protests often, like when you're waiting for your friends to come out of jail. Mm. <laughs> I noticed that people would start bringing out DJs and projections and throwing dance parties outside of jails mm-hmm. um, as a way to keep people, you know, um, awake and, and, and present. So um, I did see some overlap between the ravers and the protests that were happening, but not enough. And mm-hmm. this is like one of my biggest criticisms is that uh, a lot of the time rave culture during the pandemic was associated with, you know, young people being reckless and selfish and just, you know, being pure hedonists and mm-hmm. just sort of forgetting what was happening and disengaging and escaping, which is a huge part of rave culture. And that's definitely still something that's happening on an even more accelerated level now. You know, mm-hmm. in New York, where I am right now, in the heart of Brooklyn, I think that rave culture has become really young because Gen Z just graduated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Gen Z has entered the rave scene, which is really fascinating. And they have a lot of anger. They have mm-hmm. a lot of trauma that they are trying to release on the dance floor and the music is fast it is hard it is dark and it is not necessarily political in the in the ways that I would want to see there is a lot of discourse and performativity yeah but I'm not seeing that much actual engagement with legislation mm-hmm. um and and, and in tangential um, movement. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that rave as usual will kind of move in several different directions at once. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a choose your own future situation. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, that's, well, that is part of why I wanted to um, talk with you because like I also try to use this podcast as a way to pick people's brains um, on what, they think the future could look like because I do feel like we are at a very formative time like everything feels we've just gone through this massive collapse and everybody's kind of grieving different things but there's also so much space and I just yeah I I would love to see sort of the arts and rave scenes uh, and the social movements that cropped up kind of all join forces although of course you're probably right in that there's a it's really just going to fracture and fragment. It's like, there's not one, uh, one way that it will go. Um, but yeah, I appreciate, um, you sharing. I mean, do you have any either examples that you've seen that you feel like you would like to see more of in the future or sort of visions for what your ideal future in terms of the future of all these intersections might look like? Well, you know, um, I have seen uh, 
more ravers now that we're out of the pandemic um participate in protests and just sort of uh, create like I mean during, Pride just happened in New York and it was really cool to see a lot of the queer DJs come out with their own floats and sort of street street parade kind of um, parties and um, yeah I would love to see more rave culture on the sort of streets um, and I am very interested in you know, creating events around psychedelics. And um, specifically, I started throwing, um, well, we just did our first one, a pilot run, a shroom rave Mm -hmm. in LA in a forest. Um, And I think this is a really um, interesting way to, you know, create space for people to experiment with these substances in a social setting, in a safe setting, Mm -hmm. um, and really try and like, you know, understand what it means to be tripping collectively together in a hopefully, um, spiritually enriching or healing, um, modality. Um, because these substances are actually so new to social culture, at least in a, you know, more mainstream way, I think it's really important for us to be jumping into this together and figuring things out together. And I'm not going to lie, I was really nervous before I threw my first shroom rave, which was in a forest during the full moon. Mm -hmm. It was really beautiful. Um, But I was really scared that people would get freaked out and not know what to do and and just, you know, uh, have a bad trip or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But similar to like what happened with my other previous social experiments with weed, with weed rave, which is another party that I do. Mm -hmm. um, It turns out that it's actually a very social substance and that people wanted to do more and people wanted to really go even deeper into the experience with other people um, versus, you know, the stereotype of becoming, you know, this sort of comatose, like freaked out person in the corner of the party, not knowing what to do. Mm. (laughs) So um, I'm very excited for the future of like shroom and psychedelic parties Mm -hmm. and also spaces and venues as cannabis becomes legalized in New York there's a lot of discussion of like cannabis lounges and cannabis Mm -hmm. clubs which is not something that has ever existed like the only model we have are cafes in Amsterdam which are a totally different thing I think Mm -hmm. like you know the idea of a cannabis club cannabis nightclub Mm -hmm. (laughs) sounds like sci-fi but it's literally on the brink of happening and it's gonna happen in new york i think first because of how strong nightlife is here um in la there were already a few sort of like cannabis restaurants popping up before the pandemic but because of covid all of that activity got shut down so we're really on the brink of something that's going to really fundamentally shift the way that we interact with each other. And Mm -hmm. I'm obviously here for it. (laughs) I'm here for it too. Totally. I mean, that's the, the classic, I guess, idealistic way of looking at psychedelics is that they would ideally 
deepen our connections to each other and the planet and create more empathy. That was the original psychedelic dream. I do think obviously like it takes intention and care to make sure that happens. It won't just happen by giving people psychedelics. So yeah, that's why I think creating those types of spaces are really, really important. And yeah, I'm in San Francisco at the moment. Um, and it's interesting to see, uh, it's interesting to see things return people kind of testing the waters um, and figuring out what the city is going to be. I'm sure, yeah, I was in New York for five years before that. So I'm sure that New York is doing fine. Well, thank you so much for all of this. Um, this was really, really fascinating. I'm wondering if there's any anything you want to talk about or explore um, or go deeper into. But yeah, this is this is really cool. Yeah, I think we uh, covered some pretty good ground. Just want to mm-hmm. shout out my newsletter, Rave New World. Mm-hmm. Hope that people subscribe and follow along. It's a newsletter about nightlife and drugs through a sort of countercultural and political lens. I'm going to be traveling to a bunch of other cities throughout this year, sort of investigating how the return of nightlife and party culture is dovetailing with drug legalization and decriminalization Mm -hmm. movements around the country. So I'm very interested in independent media right now and creating these sorts of like underground media spaces outside of the mainstream discourse. So yeah, I hope that whoever's listening to this can subscribe. Definitely subscribe to Substack. I'll put a link in the I'll put a link in the description of the podcast so you can check that out. Yeah, underground media also sounds really fascinating. I do have to ask like what what kind of underground media? Like Substack or just Yeah. Like, yeah. Substack, discussion forums, Discord servers, um, signal groups, <laughs> WhatsApp groups. Just sort of spaces that aren't um, necessarily Googleable, that are kind of like in the know, need to know, membership based, community based. You know, I find these discussions to be really, really interesting um, and in some ways more engaging to me and more relevant to me than what's happening in the very broad mainstream media verse those underground networks um yeah there's a lot of power there for sure and thank you for um being a part of it and also doing such yeah I'm just a huge fan of your reporting um I yeah there's not many people who can write in such a sensitive and reflective way about what you write about so thank you for that and thank you for being here Thank you so much, Eden. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Really, really enjoyed this conversation.